After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. A couple great passages here in chapter 15. The first one being where God says not to be afraid in that first verse, and we mentioned this on Saturday night, that Generally, when the Lord says not to be afraid, it's because someone is afraid. So he says, do not be afraid. So we can have adrenaline, and we can feel so bold and so courageous at certain times with certain things, and we just go for it, and we're so sure the Lord and the confidence, and there's Abram going out to rescue his nephew Lot, and he's charging it, and he's got his commando unit, and they defeat Chedorlaomer and his alliance of kings, and just they rout him. They attacked him. They pursued him like over 100 miles, overtook him, routed him, got everything back. But it's so often when you're in the mountaintop of a great victory or something successful that when you come down from the mountain and the adrenaline, if you will, sort of just dissipates, you're like, that you're vulnerable. We talk about this with evangelistic outreaches, and this is why it's always so important to pray for like Greg Laurie before, during, and after Harvest Crusade and men like him who do events like that because there's so much adrenaline and there's such a spiritual battle, and you're just spirit-filled, and you do it, and all these things happen, and people get, commit themselves to Christ, and then you're just filled with joy, and then things sort of settle down, and then weird stuff usually happens, some kind of a, a back-end attack, some health thing or tragedy, which in fact did happen with Harvest, and things like that happen. And so we're, we're told... Not, I don't say this in a, a negative way toward Abram or even Greg Laurie or myself or you, but we are told if anyone thinks they stand, take heed lest they fall. And Paul the Apostle said that we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. So it's really important that we, we just bear in mind that when we have great victory, supernatural victory, because Melchizedek said to Abram, God gave you that victory. Sometimes when the adrenaline comes down, we can go into a bit of a rut or we can have fear or God might just allow us to go through a trial and a tribulation just to, just to keep us in a place where we're usable and moldable with him and that we're not uh, puffed up and filled up with ourselves after something great or tremendous happening. And so God comes to Abram and says, do not be afraid. So it would seem that the father of faith, Abram, went into a bit of a, a funk after this great victory, after he turned down all the wealth of Sodom, I don't need your riches. And then you go home, you think about it. Maybe I could have taken that check. That might not have been a bad idea, but in the moment he knew, like, don't receive anything from him. And so we don't really know what's going on, but God said, don't be afraid. And then he said, I am your shield and great reward, which is really important. What applied to Abram before his name was changed to Abraham applies to all the followers of Jesus Christ, that Christ is our defense. Christ is our reward. And all those types of the Old Testament, for example, the Levitical priesthood, that the Lord was their reward. They didn't get land per se, large 
chunks of land like the other 12 tribes of Israel because God said over and over, I'm their inheritance. And God says here to Abram, I'm your shield and your reward. And Jesus Christ is our shield and our reward when we give our life to Christ, that he protects us, he watches over us, he's got, his, he's got our back. We're told that angels are ministering spirits sent to those who are being saved by grace. There in Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. And God protects us. And as much as we might feel led to protect ourselves or be moved with fear, because there are things that can cause fear for the body of Christ, for an individual person, fear of loss, fear of bodily harm, fear of the unknown. There's so many things, and we just have to remember that the Lord is our shield, and nothing ever happens that doesn't have a plan and purpose for our lives to make us like Christ in and through the experiences that we have that we might be fearful or afraid of. He is your shield. He is our shield. And if the Lord's protecting you, there's no greater force or entity of the universe that can protect you better than the Lord because it's his universe, and it's all made by him and for him, and we're his children. And so as an earthly father would do good things for the earthly children, how much more will our heavenly father protect us through the son, the Lord Jesus Christ? He is our shield. And we just have to keep that in mind. We're afraid of the boogeyman, and we're afraid of the shadows, that God is, we're afraid of the unknown. And it's been said that 90% of what people fear doesn't even come to pass. Fear sells, and it sells big. And the devil loves to play on fear, and fear and faith are opposites. So God says to him, I'm your shield. I've got your back. Because what if Tetelaomar and those guys realize, hey, we can regroup? Because, you know, some armies, no matter how many times you beat them, they just regroup and come back. Some foes, and the devil's like that. He's, he's not done until he's thrown in the lake of fire. He can get defeated, but he's always planning a counterattack to reclaim lost things that he's lost to the kingdom of God. And Chedorlaomer was a very powerful king. He routed the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They fled into the hills. They got everything they wanted. They're from Iran. And they were going back with everything. And maybe Chedorlaomer is going to go back and get his friends and come back a second time with a much bigger army with greater weapons and, a, and not be caught off guard. They were caught off guard by the nighttime attack with Abram and his commandos. They didn't see that coming. But they could come back with a larger military and another coalition of kings. But that's the unknown. Do we read about that happening in the scriptures? No. Is there a historical record that Chedorlaomer ever came back? No. But you know when it all the adrenaline's gone and you have time to think about it? Like, what if the boss comes back? What if that person becomes the boss? What if those neighbors don't actually sell their house? What if this person becomes president? What if that person's not the president? What if this person's the governor? What if the mayor does this? What if my parents change the estate? Blah, 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 blah. All those things can go on. What if it really is cancer? What if it's not just here, but it's there too? God is our shield. He's our shield against every fear that the devil could ever throw at us. Keep that in mind. And he's our reward. Christ is our reward. Our relationship with the Lord, there is nothing superior that goes deeper in the human experience than our relationship with God through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His spirit bearing witness with our spirit. We are triune in our nature. We're spirit, mind, and body. And we're just mind and body on the animal plane. 
without the Lord Jesus Christ coming into our life. But when we're born again and we're born of the Spirit, we're made alive and we're made complete. And we're brought into that fullness of our purpose. That's the good news of the gospel. That if anyone be in Christ, a new creation, all things have passed away, all things are new. And Adam all sin and die, but in Christ are made alive. So he is our reward. That joy of the Lord is everything. Jesus said, I came that you might have you know, life, abundant life, and that more abundantly. And that I've spoken these things that your joy would be full. He's our reward. Whatever reward we could pursue or hope for in the temporal and the linear elements of time, Christ is our reward that supersedes that. When we give our life to Christ, we're in this state. I mean, Romans 8 says we're joint heirs with Christ in the Father's estate. And he's our reward. That's the beauty for all the people who have incurred great injustices in the human experience who belong to Jesus Christ. When you think of all the redistribution that like the, the Bolsheviks and the Red Army did in Russia and the Eastern Europe and all that stuff between World War I and World War II, what they did to the Ukrainians with the, the genocide, the starvation genocide in 32-33, one of the greatest genocides in human history. When you think of what they did and you think of like what Hitler and his SS troops did and all the criminals they let go and what they did to all the Jews and all these people and all the wealth, do you understand how much wealth was stolen in World War II? How much wealth was stolen in World War II by the Nazis and the Soviets? And if you weren't born again and you lost wealth, you just lost wealth because someone like Chetel Aomar took was bigger and stronger than you. They took what was yours. But if you lost wealth during that timeline or in the communist era, like so many people lost their farms because... The communists come and say it belongs to them. If Stalin says your farm in Romania is his, it's his. And if you lose it because you're a Romanian citizen, then that's tough luck for you. But if you're a Christian Romanian and you lose it, then it's the earth is the Lord's and everything they're in, and you can give that to the Lord. And they can incarcerate you for 14 years like Richard Wormbrandt, but you're the Lord's. And it's all going to be taken care of in eternity. See, the beautiful thing with the relationship with Jesus Christ is he is our reward. That relationship with Christ can never be taken from us for all the other things that can be taken from us. They can never take from you the joy of that relationship with Jesus Christ. So we marvel at this young lady sharing at the Voice of the Martyrs Conference in February who'd been in prison for six years for her faith. And I just looked at her and I just cried as she talked about the struggle for the church in China right now. And all the stuff being taken. You see, Jesus for the church is our reward. And that was Paul's idea when he said in Romans 8, what can, if God be for us, who can be against us? And what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Famine, peril, sword? No, because Christ is our reward. That's how Paul and Silas are praising the Lord after a public beating in Philippi. That's why they're praising the Lord. That's why Paul in his last epistle can say, the Lord has stood with me and will always stand with me. Even though these people forsook me, the Lord will always be with me because the Lord is our reward. That's the heart that Paul said to the Colossians when he said that we do things unto the Lord, not unto men, and we will receive our reward from the Lord. 
We're not doing things to be men pleasers. See, the objective is to be spirit-filled and to have that relationship that overflows. And the greatest reward is the people impacted by our lives committed to the Lord. That's it. The reward isn't the temple things that can get left behind. The reward is the life of Christ working in and through us in whatever situation we're in. The reward is praising the Lord with praise songs in Philippi, and then the Philippian jailer gets saved in in his whole family. That's the reward. It's really important that we measure our rewards in this life not by the temporal or by the worldly system or by what we'd hope would be justice from the court systems of any government of men, but our reward is the Lord and the relationship. The cross is the reward because the cross and the empty tomb is the fellowship that we have with the living God that makes us alive and complete holistically, if you will, spirit, mind, and body. And we have that relationship restored that was lost and we have the fullness of that. And so he's our shield that protects us and he's our relationship that sustains us. And he is our reward. When we step into eternity, the reward isn't like what we get for like some bonus for sales, you know, X amount of cars we sold at a dealership or some kind of real estate award at the end of the year or Disney or anything or academic awards or or gold medals in the Olympics. The reward is Jesus. Christ is our reward and we have him now. And eternity is the fullness of that relationship. For now we see dimly, but then we'll see clearly. And faith and hope will fade, but love will never fade, because that's the eternal, that's the eternal emotion. So here's Abraham as Abram, the father of faith, having just gone for it and vulnerable, and the Lord says, I am your shield and your reward. Received a email, blog, newsletter from a missionary this week dealing with some very challenging circumstances. And they started out their blog with this verse. And they said it was the verse God gave them when they felt called to the field in a very far away and very foreign country. This verse... 15.1 almost gets looked over because you're going toward 15.6. But 15.1 is pretty special in its own right. Now, 15.6 is an amazing passage as well. Abram. And it says that God made this promise to him that his descendants, you see the stars, you can't even begin to count the descendants that are going to come from you. And it's not your employee, your employee's kid, Eliezer, is going to be the inheritance, but from you is the, the sun's going to come and a nation's going to come. And Abram's just like, I can't even wrap my mind around this. And God's like, well, see those stars start, you need a bigger vision, Abram, because the God of promises is laying out a pretty big promise for you. And all you need to do is believe. And it says, Abram, believe God and has accounted him for righteousness. Now, this is a very important verse in the New Testament because it's quoted three times in the New Testament. All three times as the foundation for being saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the strongest place where that's used is Romans 4, referring to Abram and building the case, Paul the apostle building the case of salvation by grace through faith, not works, human effort, but by grace. So our salvation 
in being saved through faith in Jesus Christ is we believe the gospel message and we receive it and we're born again. We don't earn being born again. We're not made alive because we did certain amount of good deeds. The moment we receive the gospel message, we believe we're saved. It's much like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. Believe. Believe in the promises. The promise that believe in who he is, what he's done. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How will they know if we don't preach? Romans 10. God made this promise to Abram. And he believed it. And it was accounted or reckoned to his account as righteousness. So the bank account filled up spiritually for Abram because God said it and all he did was believe it. Thus we get that phrase, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, that's very biblical. Because all the promises of God are yes and yes and amen. So he says it, it's established. Before service, Eric and I were discussing that listening to older Bible studies from 40 years ago, and now you see where things are at now, that God doesn't change and everything's going to come to pass that he says is going to come to pass. We're just right on this timeline, clicking away toward the end game of all the prophecies and promises that God, that God made for what it's going to look like in the end of the age before the trumpet sounds and he comes for the church and then he'll come with the church and establish the kingdom. Every promise comes to pass. Politicians make promises Banks make promises. Bosses make promises. But they may or may not come to pass. But the promises of God that are a firm foundation for everyone in this room through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a common denominator when we give our life to Christ. You think of people who were born again at the Harvest Crusade back in August. And God knows those that were born again. That the moment they received Christ, that they received all those promises applied to them. They're reckoned righteous because they believe the gospel message and all those promises are accounted to them. Every promise in the Bible that a believer has in Christ Jesus are given to them. Now, I've been walking those promises for 31 years. They go forward at the crusade and however long you've been walking with the Lord, but the moment they went forward and they're there and receiving Christ... The, the same promises apply. They're equally in the will and the trust, the estate. Because all the promises are yes, yes, and amen. So they're, they're there. So Abraham believed God. So when you're facing the grave, we're like Martha and Mary, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she's, they both said, yes, Lord. I believe that. Our confidence on that last day is not that we did everything right, but that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. When you are literally gasping for air and you know you're going, the confidence to transcend triumphantly to glory is because we're believing in the promises of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. And this story of Abram believing God and it being accounted to him for righteousness like the, the money's in the bank, it's because of his faith in the promises. Now, his life will reflect that faith, but those 
actions and reactions of his life that reflect his faith, they're just reflecting that the faith is an active faith, like it says in the book of James. But those actions aren't saving him. The saving grace was in the believing, and that transformation shows itself. And of course, the book of James is pretty much dedicated to that thought. As Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness, so too you and I and the people that still need to hear before the Lord comes back, the moment they hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave for their hope, and they choose to believe that and turn from their sin, they are accounted for righteousness because they believe what God promises in the gospel message. It makes the vision, the play call, if you will, of the church very simple. For 2,000 years, we have a very simple message. And when people are willing to humble themselves and turn from their sins and receive Christ, like most of you here tonight, we pass from death to life, and God accounts it for righteousness. And again, the book of Romans, particularly the first six, seven, eight chapters, deal with this this passage and what it really means theologically in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we read on, verse 7. Then he, Abram, said, excuse me, then he, the Lord, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he, Abram, said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It all belonged to the Lord because the earth is the Lord's and he gave it to Abram. It's God to give to whoever he wants to. Now, a couple interesting things here. The covenant and there's blood. This is consistent with what we've seen from Genesis 3, Genesis 4, going forward. Noah coming off the ark. Blood, promises, blood, faith, substitution. Sealed that way. Now, Abram had this deep sleep with a horrible nightmare, and you wish it was just a nightmare, but it did come to pass because his descendants, the 70 descendants of Abram within a few generations end up in Egypt in the latter part of this book. They become a nation in Egypt, and they come out of their slavery in Egypt. Of course, we're going to read all about that in the book of Exodus, and it goes into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well. So it did come to pass exactly like the Lord said. But I like how the Lord said to him, you shall be buried at a good old age. You'll go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. 
which just yet again reminds us that what God has for one generation isn't necessarily what he has for another. What he had for Abram is not what he had for Moses or Jochebed. You know, it's like, it just fascinates me how we have our timeline. What he has for Norwegians in the 1800s is not what he has for their descendants in 2019. Because I'm named after a village in Norway. And my relatives came here because there was no food. There was a famine in Norway. And through the course of three, four years, the first wave came over. My great-grandfather took the name of the village as a last name coming through Ellis Island. And then three years later, his wife and all those kids came over, not speaking a word of English, took the train across from New York to Wisconsin, and they carved out a name for themselves. But that was their story. That's just the Norwegian side. Do you ever think like what the story is with your ancestors before you came? I, I love to study stuff like that. To me, it's fascinating. I just think it's fascinating to think like, what's the story like? Like Leah the other night was saying, do you know Jacob's family? Like they're all French and they did this and that. And I'm like, yeah, I knew, I knew Jacob was French. The Bradley, the, they're the Bradley line of, through the French. And, but it's all this European connection. I'm like, you know, they all came before us. Some get to go to their grave in peace. Others, it's just travail. David was a man of warm blood. Solomon never had to fight a war that we read of. Well, the war he had to fight was his own soul and his own lust. Interestingly enough. Well, there's a lot of war after he died. It's just interesting to me. Like, what if the Lord came to you in a dream and a vision and said, here's what's going to happen to your kids, your great-grandkids, your, grandkids, your great-grandkids, and when you're gone in the year 2130, this is what's going to happen to your descendants four generations removed. You'd just be like, wow. Well, and you see this in the Bible. Well, at least it doesn't happen in my time. Like, that's literally what Hezekiah said, right? And God said, oh, those guys, those Babylonians, those little nobodies who showed everything, they're going to come back in about 100 years and take everything. Well, that's bad news. Yeah, but you won't be alive. Well, that's good news. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's like, we're so human, aren't we? It's like, well, that's bad news for a later generation. By the way, who even knows what to expect for a later generation here in America, right? Who even knows where this is going? But God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. And he's our shield and exceedingly great reward. It came to pass, just like the Lord said. And God did give that land to his descendants, the Israelites. And the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. The Amorites is a broad term for all these subdivisions of people he mentions here at the end of the chapter. And they had their chance. We know from the book of Numbers, they're very evil. And they just, you know, there's a song that we used to sing with an echo. And it says, judgment and grace. I mention this every once in a while. Faithfulness and sovereignty, holy is the Lord. But one phrase is judgment and grace. And the amazing thing is, when the Israelites, 400 years plus, come into the land later under Joshua, it's grace because God's given them fields they didn't plant, homes they didn't build, vineyards that weren't theirs, and God's given it to them. That's grace, but it's judgment on the Amorites. Judgment and grace. Who is sufficient to know these things? But we choose the fear of the Lord. Chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will, shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt 
10 years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, that would be a sexual relationship, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. In other words, Hagar despised Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. And thus this puts in motion the introduction of how we're going to get Ishmael, who's a type of the flesh, in contrast to the son of promise, Isaac, who's a type of the spirit. This storyline is recorded for us in Genesis. In the New Testament, it's explained in great detail in Galatians what it represents. And even to this day, the global conflict between Islam and the Jews in the Middle East is very much centered on two different ethnic groups of people and their religious belief systems debating over which son is promised the land to this day. This, this, this story profoundly, radically affects the entire planet this day. Hagar and Ishmael. Now, there's a lot you can say about this, and we'll keep it reasonably short. Sarai said, the Lord has restrained me. Verse 2, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Well, that is true. There's things that the Lord restrains to our own benefit. As you get older, you can look back and say, well, the Lord restrained me from that. He restrained me from this and restrained me from that. And a lot of times he restrains us from things that would do us harm or he just knows that that success or that dream fulfilled might be the very thing that destroys us. He restrains us from things that maybe we don't even know there's danger around the corner. We talked about this last week with Lot. Sodom looked good, but if you knew Tetel Omar was coming in a couple of years and taking everyone in captivity, you might not like that lakeside property there in Sodom. But then the restraint context that she's saying is, is that, well, the Lord's kind of, you know, not blessing me like he's punishing me or it seems unfair or whatever. But so often we feel like and we're inclined to think that the Lord's against us, which is the wrong conception to have with the Lord. God is for us. And he would have us trust in him to lean not on understanding, him, but to trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's a lot of things that people don't get to experience in life that maybe they would want to experience. Think how many people want to be American citizens. They can't be. There's just different things. It just, things don't, things don't always go the way you want them to go or the way you think they should go. But when we belong to the Lord, we can trust him with however they are going, that he's got a plan to cause it to work together for good in our lives. We don't, life's not fair, like we were saying earlier, and we don't always... You might be the most qualified person to get into that college, but they're not going to accept you. You might be so qualified for the promotion and that job, but you're not going to get it because the boss's kid's going to get it. And then they're going to blame you when they don't do the job right. Life is not always fair. Your kid might be the best kid on the soccer team, but the other kid's dad is the coach. So that kid gets to play whatever position, and that's just the way it works. So figure that one out early in AYSO and Little League because that's a preview of coming attractions because that's the way it works in the world, for better or for worse. It's not about perceived injustices or unfairness that the Lord might have or people do or things that happen, but it's really about trusting the Lord that God has it. 
And we say this many times, but when he says no, it's generally louder than yes. But no from the Lord is not always a permanent no. We often think it's no, but it might be wait. Because any prayer is yes, no, or wait. When you lift up prayers of the Lord and like Hannah there and Samuel just pouring her heart out to the Lord, sobbing and all that, like it wasn't a no to not have children. It was a wait till you're the right person to have children and you'll actually give me your first son who will become Samuel the prophet and anoint the kings. She says, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Now, I don't know what's all behind that statement. This is the Holy Spirit recording this for us. Was it a a defeated, he'll forever restrain me? I mean, Abram just said earlier in the previous chapter, Eliezer's kid, my employee's kid's going to be heir of everything I've accomplished. And God says, no, it's not true. There's a lot to be said for going for it with the Lord, but there's a lot to be said for waiting upon the Lord too and just trusting that the Lord is in control. I'm so happy that this isn't the end of the story for Sarai, who becomes Sarah, because from this verse where she says, the Lord has restrained me from having children, we read a summary of her life in Hebrews 11, 11, that by faith, she counted him faithful that he who promised it would bring it to pass. So wherever her heart was at here, where somehow the Lord was treating her cruelly or unfairly and she couldn't provide an heir to her husband, Abram. I mean, imagine being married to the father of faith. I mean, Abram's your husband and all you have to do is produce some children. And it's the one thing you can't do in a culture where everyone expects you to do it. So it's a mark against you. This went on for thousands of years. Look at Zacharias and Elizabeth. She said, the Lord has removed my reproach. Remember how Elizabeth said that when she had John the Baptist? The Lord has removed my reproach. It was a reproach. But you know, if you got a reproach because God's closing a door or holding back things or it's not going a certain way, it can't, can't be a bad thing. It's a Jesus thing to make you more like Jesus. And to have a summary of your life be that you counted him faithful who promised it, there's a journey to get there. I mean, the destination is to be in Hebrews 11, verse 11. The first woman, there's Sarai. And of course, Isaac means laughter. And of course, the irony of all that is we'll get to it in a couple chapters. But like, ladies and men, to get to be in Hebrews chapter 11 with a summary of your life that you counted him faithful. The journey is the process that he gets the summary of the destination. Because you can arrive at a destination not be who you're meant to be. But if the journey is trials and heartache and disappointment and refinement and closed doors and rejection and reproach. But if it gets you to who you're supposed to be at the end of the journey then you're ready for what really matters, eternity, and God's plans in eternity. It's not about what we get in this life. It's about the preparation of this life for the next life. And we can never lose sight of that. Sometimes it seems like the Lord's restraining stuff, but he, he knows what he's doing. He, he knows what he's doing. And we can trust him. 
I had to learn that as a parent. In my own life, I didn't take it so much that way because it seemed like everything went my way. All my dreams as a tweener and a teenager pretty much came to pass. I dreamed of being a pro surfer when there weren't pro surfers. I dreamed of winning the Pipe Masters when I was on World of Sports, and I did win the Pipe Masters. I, I dreamed of being a great pro surfer, and I'm in the Hall of Fame. Like, everything kind of went my way for the first 24 years. It got a little choppy after that because lessons that I had to learn, and praise the Lord for my wife who stood by me, as I had to go learn what it's like to work a minimum wage job in your 30s. How's that feel, Mr. Big Shot, right? You know, it's funny, I was thinking about this. I read of a missionary today whose goal was to plant 25 churches in the Netherlands. I thought, good for you. Good for you. Someone on this planet is pastoring a church in the Netherlands right now, Calvary Chapel. It's the second one they've planted. There's two. And their goal, you can get it right out of the Calvary Chapel missionary prayer booklet for 2019. Their goal is to plant 25 Calvary Chapels in the Netherlands. I thought, good for you. I actually got to put the book down for him. I was like, good for you. What's my goal? It's kind of like when someone put all the chips in 25 Calvary chapels in the Netherlands. What do you got? Put the hand up like, well, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Pull out my journal right now and write some new goals down. I'll tell you what one goal was 25 years ago. Was to plant dozens of Calvary chapels in New England. Never did it. I thought I was going there to be like Paul the Apostle. Yeah, I was going to be there like Joseph in prison. Oh, the Lord restrained us from planting all these churches and had a totally different plan. But see, that's part to get to who we are now. Interesting quote I read from Hudson Taylor, and I've been using a lot of Hudson Taylor lately, but it's fresh and it's good. He said, I'll take four decades of disappointment if it prepares me for one decade of fruit. Oh, what? Let me say that again. He said, I'll take four decades of disappointment if it'll prepare me for one decade of great fruit. His goal was a mission station in all the forbidden inland provinces of China, thus the China Inland Mission. And when he died in 1904-05, he was sitting in one of those inland provinces having planted missionary stations in every one of the inland provinces. That son that God was restraining Sarai with, that son is Isaac, the son of promise, who as an adult would submit to his father at Mount Moriah as a type of Christ. That son would have his children, including Jacob, and his grandchildren would be 12 tribes of Israel. And the star of David's flying in Jerusalem right now. So is the American flag for our embassy, which is a good thing. How could you know? I mean, every ethnic Jew on planet Earth comes through Sarai, who said, the Lord has restrained me from having children. Oh, look in the heavens, Abram and Sarai. See the stars, if you could count them. Walk the land, the dust, if you could count them. It's always so much more. Big visions, big faith, big God, Patience in the beatdown. I'll take four decades of tribulation to have one decade of good fruit. And there's a lot to be said there.
Sometimes the Lord just restrains things because it's not about planting churches in 1995 in New England. It's about other things. Maybe you get a rematch. I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. Maybe you just live 21 years like Melissa Hanning Camp. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. I don't know. Who's sufficient for these things? But when we're restrained by the Lord, what seems to be restrained, we can trust in the Lord. Don't you think so? Can I get an amen? Amen. The Lord has restrained me, and yet there she is in Hebrews 11. She counted him faithful who promised it. God's timing is not our timing, but his power is availed to the utmost for what we might see in our timeline according to his promises and his call in our life, and maybe what we won't see in our timeline. We close out the chapter, verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, that is Hagar, by the way of Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Ber Be'er Lahai Roi. Observe it between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 year old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Thus now we have the son of the flesh. But you almost have to chuckle at verse 12 where it says, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Thus the Arab-Israeli conflict to this day. There's, there's no resolution apart from the gospel and the pseudo peace that the Antichrist will bring at the end of the age. God knows the end from the beginning. And yet he's merciful and gracious. Here's the son of the flesh. This surrogate idea that came into Sarai's mind that, of course, was doomed from the get-go. But in her desperation, common sense checks out. And now there's this bond between her husband and the, the maidservant. He's going to have this son. It's only going to create problems and drama, which that kind of stuff always does. And yet there's grace in here where God has a plan. Even though Ishmael's not the son of promise, God has a plan for Ishmael. God had a plan for Ishmael and a purpose for Ishmael. That's, that's encouraging. Now, we're going to see in a couple of chapters, Abram says, oh, that you would bless Ishmael. And God says, no, no, no. I have blessed Ishmael, but the promises that I do is what I promise to you, not what you do in your own efforts. We'll see that coming up shortly. But the closing thought on this text tonight is Hagar. I think we can relate to Hagar like, I'm not going to work for these people. Like, I'm always going to play second fiddle to her. I've got the child. And you know that look that says, I've got a child and you don't. I produce children and you don't like that look, ladies. There's no words necessary. It's just to look like that kind of look, that look. 
well, that'll rip a Bedouin tent apart for sure. That's drama that's not going away. And yet, God's going to work through that in the human experience. And we can relate to just saying, I'm out of here. I don't need this. I go live somewhere else. I'll go die in the desert. I'm not going to submit to you people. And I think we can relate to this. It's like when you get the new boss and you're like, there is no way I'm going to work for this person. I'm out of here. I can't deal with this. There are times in life where you just go like, you know what? I'm over it. You get a professor, I'm dropping that class. But sometimes like, you can walk, and other times you're supposed to go back because there's a lesson to be learned in that. God will give us difficult authorities over us to refine us, to make us more like Jesus, certainly for the believers. And don't discount a difficult situation that you want to run away from. But God has a plan for you in that situation. You're the God who sees. This is Hagar. And she says, he appeared to her, and he said, she says, you're the God who sees. And he goes, right, now go back and submit to that authority. And give her credit, she submitted to it for over a decade. She submitted to it for over a decade, that difficult living situation, for over a decade. Now, we're going to get her again in another time when God appears to her in an even more distressing time than this. But God says, hey, it's good. I'm the God who sees. I've got a plan for this son. Don't worry about it. Go back to your boss. Go back to that house. Submit yourself to that authority and just know I'm the God who sees. You see, we can work any job. We can submit under any circumstance if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and realize he is the God who sees. He is our shield and he's our reward and he's the God who sees. We can't always run away from every bad relationship thing that it comes into our life. Remember all these people said they're going to leave the country if Trump became president? Did they leave the country? No. It's a great country. Why would you leave it? I've been to a lot of the countries. This one's podium, top three that I'd pick. England, Australia, USA. Those are the three that I'd pick, at least at this point in my life. New Zealand's a close runner-up, right? Top five, New Zealand. But like, I'm just not going to submit that authority. So, No. The ultimate authority in our life is the God who sees, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And it all comes through him. And if he says, go back, go back. If he says, trust in me to persevere, that's good for us. Because he doesn't want us to trust in us, but that we trust in him. And he'll see us through it. It might be for a week. It might be for a decade. But he is the God who sees. So whatever you're going through and whatever challenges that you might face with authority over you, Just remember, he's the God who sees.